When most people hear the phrase war on terror, they think of battles and airstrikes in the Middle East and South Asia. Africa doesn't typically come to mind, but it's been part of the U.S.'s war all along. Here's President George W. Bush on September 20th, 2001. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? The evidence we have gathered all points to a collection of loosely affiliated terrorist organizations known as Al-Qaeda. They are some of the murderers indicted for bombing American embassies in Tanzania and Kenya. It was later in that same speech that Bush first declared the global war on terror. Throughout the decades since, the U.S. has spent millions working with African troops in the name of counterterrorism. There are 29 U.S. military bases across the continent. But it is true that the so-called war on terror in Africa looks different. And it gives a clear hint of what the U.S.'s global security engagement could look like in the years to come. In this third and final part of our Course of the Forever War series, we look to the future. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Kenya serves as an important case study of sorts for how this war has evolved in Africa. As the U.S. has built up its counterterrorism efforts in East Africa, the issues of ever-expanding policies and lack of accountability that we've talked about in the series so far followed them there. The story of what happened to 39-year-old Taimur Hossein is just one example. He's a Kenyan citizen who lived in the U.S. for several years, working in IT. Eventually, he decided he missed his family in Kenya and moved back, seeking what was supposed to be a better quality of life. That is, until this summer, when he disappeared. It all started on June 11th. Taimur was visiting the coastal town of Lamu at the time. Here's his sister, Fauzia. As he's going to get something to eat in the evening, he's accosted by two officers in plain clothes. Apparently, they identified themselves to him and he resisted arrest, like he walked away from them. At that point, they start beating him. Fauzia says she later learned the beatings were so bad that Taimur had to get stitches on his head. His little finger was broken. He got a sling for his arm and his family knew nothing. The police had arrested him, so he wasn't answering his phone. Fauzia and her mother were sick with worry. Three days later, Taimur finally called, after already being taken to court once. They didn't give him access to a phone. They didn't give him access to call anyone until after court. So at this point, my mom asks him, why did they arrest you? He tells my mom, apparently I was out past curfew. Kenyans are under curfew from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. every day right now to prevent the spread of COVID. At first, the police said they arrested Taimur for violating that rule. But on Friday, June 18th, they changed their tune. So Friday comes and they drop the charges of resisting arrest, but then they bring up these new charges of suspicion of terrorism. So they say that they've been following him for a while and they need time to investigate him. And the best way to investigate him is to bring him to Nairobi, the capital city. 
because this is where the the headquarters of the anti-terrorism police unit are. So my mom tells me, let's get him a lawyer in Nairobi. Fauzi and her family asked the police to tell them when Taimur was being moved so they could meet him in Nairobi. It was a small but important comfort that they hoped to give him. But days passed with no information. And when Taimur eventually called, he was already in town and had been taken to court once again without a lawyer. When I asked my brother, how did you get to Nairobi? He doesn't remember. So they need to explain what they did. There's no way a grown human being would just forget. He says the last thing he remembers was, you know, when you're arrested and they make you hold this sign that says what you're charged with and everything. So they made him hold this thing in Lamu, a big board. So that's what he remembers last. The next thing he knows, he's in Nairobi. Fauzia was scared and angry about how this was all unfolding. To fight back, she and her mother sent a lawyer to meet with Taimur. Though their prison visits were restricted, there is no attorney-client privilege. He was taken to a room that had cameras all over, and there was a cop standing right behind him. The lawyer was able to defend Taimur in court at the next hearing on Monday, June 28th. Lo and behold, they have no evidence. They being the anti-terror police unit. So they say we are dropping the charges and the judge orders the ATPU to release him unconditionally. So immediately after court, the lawyer calls me and he tells me, they've dropped all the charges against your brother. I am with him right now. I'm seeing him entering the van. At this time, it's about 12.30. So I call my mom. I tell my mom, please go and pick Ty. He's being released. So my mom, she hurries up. She gets there by 2.30. When she gets there, there's a lady at the gate who tells her, oh, you're looking for so-and-so. He just left here 30 minutes ago. Why would my brother leave and he knows one of us is coming for him? Like, where could he have gone? Because at every opportunity that my brother got, he called my mom. So why wouldn't he call my mom now? Since that day, June 28th, Fauzia and her family have had no idea where Taimur is. And the police claim not to know either. Fauzia and her family have been fighting for answers, repeatedly going to court to insist that the ATPU provide information on his whereabouts, dead or alive. And they say, we released him. He left at around 1.34 p.m. So the judge says, then give us video footage between 1.30 and 1.40. That's it. We just want to see him leaving the premises. And you know what they come back and say? We don't have the footage because we delete footage every 24 hours. This is anti-terrorism police. This is an important station. Why would you delete footage every 24 hours? They think we're stupid. Like, we don't understand how these things work. And I don't think they thought we would follow up as much as we did. Fauzia and her family garnered media attention within Kenya and solicited the help of Amnesty International. But as of the release of this episode, they're still in the dark, and Taimur's story continues to haunt them. The last time my big brother saw him before court, he went to my big brother and he told him, people are following me, and if this is the last time you see me, remember that I told you this. So you can imagine how my big brother feels. And their mother? She's resigned to fate. She said, 
if he's dead it's fine just give us the body to bury if you found him guilty of something just let me know but this state of not knowing where he is it's it's killing her you know and for a parent to say that just give me my son's dead body for her to reach that point yeah so she stopped crying i've stopped crying i can't cry anymore Taimur's story shows the power of the anti-terror police in Kenya and the impunity with which they operate. Throughout Taimur's time in prison, the ATPU withheld phone calls and denied him attorney-client privilege. Then they refused to hand over information about his release. And even with the judicial system ruling in his family's favor over and over, the police haven't actually been held to account. Some say this is the future of a so-called war on terror, the global acceptance of impunity in the name of counterterrorism. Kenyans have seen this trend grow steadily more egregious, with support from the United States. And it all began in 1998. For many Africans, it was, you know, the memories and experiences of 1998 that stand out in their mind more so than 9-11 necessarily. And I think this should really push us to think critically about the notion that 9-11 was the defining moment that quote-unquote changed everything. Samar al-Balushi is an assistant professor at the University of California, Irvine, in the Department of Anthropology. What I try to do in the context of my research and writing is to decenter the U.S. and to take seriously the politics of location as we reflect back on the events of the past 20 and 25 years. So your research is primarily focused on how the so-called war on terror plays out in East Africa. And you've written that for many people there, 9-11 isn't seen as the starting point of that war. It's August 7th, 1998, that is. Can you tell us about that day? Sure. So it was on August 7th of 1998 that Al-Qaeda first emerged as a global network uh, because it was on that day that Al-Qaeda targeted the U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. One of the most severe and remembered terror attacks in Kenya is the August 7th, 1998 bomb attack at the American embassy in Nairobi. In the wake of those attacks, the government of Kenya, together with the U.S., launched a police crackdown in the predominantly Muslim coastal area of Kenya in Mombasa and conducted mass raids and arrests. And more broadly, it was at this time that President Clinton, Our forces who was in office at the time, terrorist bases in the world. responded by authorizing a military strike on alleged terrorist bases in Afghanistan. Clinton also at that time launched an attack on Sudan's Al-Shifa pharmaceutical factory in Khartoum, claiming that they were producing chemical weapons. At the time, the Clinton administration claimed that it had uh, concrete evidence connecting Al-Qaeda to this pharmaceutical factory in Khartoum, but it later came out that, in fact, that evidence was non-existent. So how did surveillance and policing change in Kenya after that? Kenya in particular emerged as a key partner of the United States, and it 
garnered a huge percentage of counterterrorism assistance that was distributed to African governments in the early 2000s. What Kenya did with that money is quite significant. They used the funds to establish elite police units, the most notorious being the anti-terror police unit. And more recently, we have learned of other units like the rapid response team that works directly with the CIA. Now, these police units have been trained and equipped by the United States and by the United Kingdom. And they have been known for disappearances, for extrajudicial killings, for torture. This anti-terrorism policing it carried out a series of extrajudicial killings and enforced disappearances while fighting terrorism in the country. The HRW claims to have documented cases of killings, enforced disappearances and mistreatment of suspects committed by the anti-terror unit. They're rarely, if ever, held to account. They rarely, if ever, actually produce suspects in court. There have been very, very few trials of quote-unquote terror suspects. And so some of the human rights organizations in the region refer to these police entities as death squads. And the language that they often use, too, is that they have now a quote-unquote epidemic of police violence and extrajudicial killings. Fauzia had mentioned this, too. She said the irony of her brother's situation is that even though he's now disappeared, his case is one of the more successful ones. She referred to a list of disappeared men that she read in the newspaper, The Daily Nation. As I was reading through it, it just hit me that my brother is the only one who got his appearance in court. The rest were just plucked off the street. So as far as we know, we are lucky because he got his day in court, but somehow still managed to disappear. Professor Al-Belushi is familiar with Fauzia's case. She's interviewed the family for her research, and she mentioned another recent case as well. In August, the anti-terror police unit abducted a young man named Abdul Hakim Salim Sagara from his home in Mombasa. He had been apparently a suspect of interest by the Kenyan government for some time, and he was required to appear in court on a monthly basis. He had been abiding by that order, and yet, out of the blue, the police showed up at his family home and bundled him into the back of a car. Similar to other cases, the family inquired at local police stations. There's been no information on his whereabouts since then. And how does this all relate to what we've just been talking about? These are the kinds of cases that go unrecognized in the kind of broader war on terror frame in the sense that these are not prominent figures. It's extremely rare that the Kenyan government produces concrete evidence against them that links them to any specific um, terror threat or terror incident. And what often motivates the apprehension of these figures is less concrete evidence and more political pressure. So it's often in the aftermath of an attack or an event that the Kenyan government will feel the need to crack down in order to demonstrate to its funders and partners in the U.S. and the United Kingdom that it is taking action. And it's in this context that a higher number of these disappearances and arrests occur. Fauzia had said that her brother was being followed. She suspects that's because of his religion. 
Professor Al-Balushi also commented on how demographics affect the counterterrorism policies in Kenya. So the focus has been primarily on the Muslim minority population. In Kenya, Muslims constitute roughly 20% of the population. They live primarily on the coast. They live in northeastern Kenya along the border with Somalia. And there's a growing number of Somalis in particular who live in the capital city of Nairobi. And so it's these three sections of Kenya that have been targeted by counterterrorism operations. Now, what this looks like concretely has been, I can give you one example of a mass raid that took place in April of 2014 when Kenyan police deployed over 5,000 security operatives to the predominantly Somali suburb of East Lee. Kenyan Muslims accuse the Kenyan security services of an assassination campaign, something the authorities strongly deny. At the time, over a thousand people were detained for up to a month in a Nairobi sports stadium. This was widely condemned by the international community, but in many ways it was simply a spectacular example of the militarization of daily life. Regular patrols have taken a new aggressive turn that has seen hundreds of people, police say more than a thousand, apprehended for various offences in such swoops in the last few days. That crackdown happened after a series of attacks by members of Al-Shabaab, an Al-Qaeda-linked armed group based in Somalia. You may remember hearing about this one in 2013. Get right to the breaking story of the morning. This morning, armed terrorists are reportedly holding roughly a dozen hostages in this supermarket inside the Westgate Mall as Kenyan troops try to force the militants out without risking innocent lives. Al-Shabaab gunmen killed 67 people in Westgate Mall that day. By that point, Kenya's anti-terror police had already been active for years. But afterwards, they stepped up their surveillance of Muslim-majority communities even further. So for Muslim populations, on a day-to-day level, they encounter checkpoints in their neighborhoods, they deal with the raids of their homes, people are picked up off of the streets, and rarely, if ever, heard from again. And because they constitute a minority, this is something that remains largely on the margins of national news cycles in Kenya. Can you tell us a bit more about how the Kenyan government uses the language of quote-unquote terrorism and counterterrorism in its policing? So, as we know, this is language that the U.S. has spearheaded, right, in the context of the war on terror, and they've made it easy for Global South partner states to latch onto and redeploy that same language in order to justify their policing efforts. While the mainstream media has been focusing primarily on the Middle East after 9-11, U.S. officials very, very quickly characterized Africa as the world's quote-unquote soft underbelly for terrorism and argued that terrorists would exploit the so-called weak law enforcement capabilities of African states. Those are direct quotes, by the way, from Susan Rice, who at the time was the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. She later went on to be the U.S.'s ambassador to the U.N. during the Obama administration. Then we can think about the ways in which political leaders in Africa are painfully aware of precisely the ways in which Africa is othered, right? And so 
they have to think strategically about how to distance themselves from the imaginative geographies of violence and terror. Now, in doing so, they too employ a language of otherness by ascribing terrorism to so-called foreigners. So it's not simply the notion that terrorism is connected to Islam and Muslims, but more specifically to populations that are racialized as foreign Muslims. So in the case of Kenya, it is the Kenyan citizens who have ties to Somalia or to the Arab world, which is quite common, right? If we think about long-standing Indian Ocean histories of trade and intermarriage, this is not something unusual. And yet it's precisely those histories that then become demonized. These populations are viewed with suspicion and subject to expansive forms of surveillance and policing. So U.S. embassies were the targets of these attacks, but the Kenyan government is the one carrying out these new policies. So how has the U.S. relationship with Kenya evolved in the years since, especially when it comes to what the U.S. has called security cooperation? I would suggest that the U.S. has been very strategic about ensuring that it is African security personnel that remain the quote-unquote face of counter-terror operations. It's extremely rare that the U.S. military comes to the fore in public discussions and debate in Kenya. Similarly, if and when people are talking about counter-terror abuses that are taking place within Kenya, the focus is on the Kenyan police. Now, the minority that has been targeted by these counter-terror operations is painfully aware of the fact that these Kenyan police are trained and equipped by the United States and the United Kingdom, but it becomes very difficult to prove their involvement if they're not actually seeing those actors deployed to the streets. So this has been an integral element of the U.S. avoiding any form of accountability. How has Kenyan society reacted to this normalization of war and the discourse around terrorism? So this is something that has interested me extensively. I've been struck by the fact that Kenyans in general are very critical of their own police, right? They have been long-standing suspicious of the corruption of the police force, of the failure to actually apprehend people and take them to court. And yet, when it comes to the war on terror, there is a surprising degree of acceptance. This has not happened organically. This is the result of the Kenyan government expending a huge amount of effort to normalize militarism in the minds of everyday Kenyans. The Kenyan government has come up with the kind of seeming perfect national hero in the figure of the Kenyan soldier that's fighting the quote-unquote terrorists in neighboring Somalia. Since 2011, Kenyan soldiers have been fighting as part of an African Union mission in Somalia. They initially invaded to push al-Shabaab out of the Somali capital, Mogadishu, but the group still holds territory in the countryside and still kidnaps and attacks communities on the Kenyan side of the border. So the war goes on. And so they've been able to unite the country around this figure of the soldier in a way that is kind of unparalleled in Kenyan history. And this is at a time when 
Of course, internally, the Kenyan government is essentially trying to distract from a lot of domestic problems. Domestic problems, including corruption, extreme inequality, and the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And so having an external war and an external enemy has been convenient in that regard. The U.S. trained and equipped Kenya's police, and over the past decade, spent roughly $400 million in the process. In essence, we're seeing the outsourcing of the so-called war on terror. When I asked Professor Al-Balushi about the future of that war, she said she expects the Kenya model to spread. In the case of Africa, I think we can expect African states to play a growing role. If we think about war and policing as connected, right, then if we think about the troops on the ground in Somalia, if we think about the Kenyan police who are apprehending suspects on a day-to-day basis, African security apparatuses are likely to continue to be the face of counterterrorism and thereby the actors who are sustaining this formation. Now, of course, you know, I think there are some potential parallels to Afghanistan in the sense that the occupying forces in Somalia that bring death and displacement rather than peace are going to continue to be the focus of attention by Somalis themselves if we think about the fact that Somalia has had in place an illegitimate government propped up by outside powers, there's a very real possibility that we can see the same kind of unfolding of things in Somalia, much like the way we've seen in Afghanistan. President Biden has explicitly said the U.S. will maintain counterterrorism capabilities in Afghanistan. And in the past three years alone, the U.S.'s counterterrorism operations touched 85 countries, according to the group Costs of War. Today, the terrorist threat has metastasized beyond Afghanistan. So, we are repositioning our resources and adapting our counterterrorism posture to meet the threats where they are now. You heard President Biden say this in the first episode of our series. The language and expansive policies of counterterrorism have metastasized as well. Hong Kong police told a press conference they had arrested nine people on suspicion of terrorist activities. They are the latest to be Turkey's parliament ratified a constitution that gives authorities the power to dismiss government employees. France's new law. Human rights activists are anxiously awaiting the press of the Philippines. In the 20 years since 9-11, dozens of countries have implemented policies based on ideas coined in the United States. Biden, in his commemoration of the 9-11 attacks, said it is the U.S.'s duty to lead. Not just by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. In many cases, following that example has led to increased surveillance, arbitrary arrests, and a lack of accountability. Around the world, the war on terror may be changing. It may include fewer American soldiers on the ground. But the forever wars are far from over. And that's The Take. If you haven't had a chance yet to check out the first two episodes of this series, search for The Course of the Forever Wars. You can also find it on our social media pages. We're at AJ The Take. 
This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilbay with Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Dina Kispe, Amy Walters, Ruby Zaman, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Aya Al-Milek is the team's engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is the Take Story editor. And Stacey Samuel is executive producer. We'll be back.